Section 7 of the State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1889-1892. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Thomas. Section 7. Benjamin Harrison. December 9, 1891. Part 3. The report of the Secretary of the Interior shows that a very gratifying progress has been made in all of the bureaus which make up that complex and difficult department. The work in the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which perhaps never so large as now, by reason of the numerous negotiations which have been proceeding with the tribes for a reduction of the reservations, with the incident labor of making allotments, and was never more carefully conducted the provision for adequate school facilities for Indian children and the locating of adult Indians upon farms involved the solution of the Indian question. Everything else, rations, annuities, and tribal negotiations with the agents, inspectors, and commissioners who distribute and conduct them, must pass away when the Indian has become a citizen, secure in the individual ownership of a farm from which he derives his subsistence by his own labor, protected by and subordinate to the laws which govern the white man, and provided by the general government or by the local communities in which he lives with the means of educating his children. When an Indian becomes a citizen in an organized state or territory, his relation to the general government ceases in great measure to be that of a ward but the general government ought not at once to put upon the state or territory the burden of the education of his children. It has been my thought that the government schools and school buildings upon the reservations would be absorbed by the school systems of the states and territories, but as it has been found necessary to protect the Indian against the compulsory alienation of his land, by exempting him from taxation for a period of twenty-five years, it would seem to be right that the general government, certainly where there are tribal funds in its possession, should pay to the school fund of the state, which would be equivalent to the local school tax upon the property of the Indian. It will be noticed from the report of the Commissioner of Indian Affairs that already some contracts have been made with district schools for the education of Indian children. There is great advantage, I think, in bringing the Indian children into mixed schools. This process will be gradual, and in the meantime the present education provisions and arrangements, the results of the best experience of those who have been in charge with this work, should be continued. This will enable those religious bodies that have undertaken the work of Indian education with so much zeal and with results so restraining and beneficent to place their institutions in new and useful relations to the Indian and to his white neighbors. The outbreak among the Sioux, which occurred in December last, is, as to its causes and incidents, fully reported upon by the War Department and the Department of the Interior, that these Indians had some just complaints, especially in the matter of the reduction of the appropriation for rations, and in the delays attending the enactment of laws to enable the department to perform the engagements entered into with them is probably true 
but the Sioux tribes are naturally warlike and turbulent, and their warriors were excited by their medicine men and chiefs, who preached the coming of an Indian messiah who was to give them power to destroy their enemies. In view of the alarm that prevailed among the white settlers near the reservation and of the fatal consequences that would have resulted from an Indian incursion, I placed at the disposal of General Miles, commanding the division of the Missouri, all such forces as were thought by him to be required. He is entitled to the credit of having given thorough protection to the settlers and of bringing the hostiles into subjection with the least possible loss of life. The appropriation of $2,991,450 for the Choctaws and the Chickasaws contained in the General Indian Appropriation Bill of March 3, 1891, has not been expended, for the reason that I have not yet approved a release to the government of the Indian claims to the lands mentioned. This matter will be made the subject of a special message placing before Congress all the facts which have come to my knowledge. The relation of the five civilized tribes now occupying the Indian territory to the United States is not, I believe, that best calculated to promote the highest advancements of these Indians, that there should be within our borders five independent states having no relations, except those growing out of treaties, with the government of the United States, no representation in the national legislature, its people not citizens, is a startling anomaly. It seems to me to be inevitable that there should be before long some organic changes in the relation of these people to the United States. What form these changes should take, I do not think it desirable now to suggest, even if they were well defined in my own mind. They should certainly involve the acceptance of citizenship by the Indians and a representation in Congress. These Indians should have opportunity to present their claims and grievances upon the floor rather than, as now, in the lobby. If a commission could be appointed to visit these tribes, to confer with them in a friendly spirit upon this whole subject, even if no agreement were presently reached, the feeling of the tribes upon this question would be developed, and discussion would prepare the way for changes which must come sooner or later. The good work of reducing the larger Indian reservations by allotments in severalty to the Indians and the cession of the remaining lands to the United States for disposition under the Homestead Law has been prosecuted during the year with energy and success. In September last, I was able to open to settlement in the territory of Oklahoma 900,000 acres of land, all of which was taken up by settlers in a single day. The rush for these lands was accompanied by a great deal of excitement, but was happily free from incidents of violence. It was a great source of regret that I was not able to open at the same time the surplus lands of the Cheyenne and Arapaho Reservation, amounting to about three million acres, by reason of the insufficiency of the appropriation for making the allotments. Deserving and impatient settlers are waiting to occupy these lands, and I urgently recommend that a special deficiency appropriation be made of the small amount needed, so that the allotments may be completed and the surplus lands opened in time to permit the settlers to get upon their homesteads in the early spring. During the past summer, 
the Cherokee Commission have completed arrangements with the Wichita, Kickapoo, and Tonkawa tribes whereby, if the agreements are ratified by Congress, over 800,000 additional acres will be open to settlement in Oklahoma. The negotiations for the release by the Cherokees of their claim to the Cherokee Strip have made no substantial progress so far as the department is officially advised, but it is still hoped that the cession of this large and valuable track may be secured. The price which the commission was authorized to offer, $1.25 per acre, is, in my judgment, when all the circumstances as to title and the character of the lands are considered, a fair and adequate one, and should have been accepted by the Indians. Since March 4, 1889, about 23 million acres have been separated from Indian reservations and added to the public domain for the use of those who desired to secure free homes under our beneficent laws. It is difficult to estimate the increase of wealth which will result from the conversion of these wastelands into farms, but it is more difficult to estimate the betterment which will result to the families that have found renewed hope and courage in the ownership of a home and the assurance of a comfortable subsistence under free and healthful conditions. It is also gratifying to be able to feel, as we may, that this work has proceeded upon the lines of justice toward the Indian, and that he may now, if he will, secure to himself the good influences of a settled habitation, the fruits of industry, and the security of citizenship. Early in this administration, a special effort was begun to bring up the work of the General Land Office. By faithful work, the arrearages have been rapidly reduced. At the end of the last fiscal year, only 84,172 final agricultural entries remained undisposed of, and the Commissioner reports that with the present force, the work can be fully brought up by the end of the next fiscal year. Your attention is called to the difficulty presented by the Secretary of the Interior as to the administration of the law of March 3, 1891, establishing a court of private land claims. The small holdings intended to be protected by the law are estimated to be more than 15,000 in number. The claimants are a most deserving class, and their titles are supported by the strongest equities. The difficulty grows out of the fact that the lands have largely been surveyed according to our methods, while the holdings, many of which have been in the same family for generations, are laid out in narrow strips, a few rods wide open upon a stream, and running back to the hills for pasturage and timber. Provision should be made for numbering these tracts as lots, and for patenting them by such numbers and without reference to section lines. The administration of the Pension Bureau has been characterized during the year by great diligence. The total number of pensioners upon the roll on the 30th day of June, 1891, was 676,160. There were allowed during the fiscal year ending at the same time 250,565 cases. Of this number, 102,387 were allowed under the law of June 27, 1890. The issuing of certificates has been proceeding at the rate of about 30,000 per month, 
about 75% of these cases being under the new law. The commissioner expresses the opinion that he will be able to carefully adjudicate and allow 350,000 claims during the present fiscal year. The appropriation for the payment of pensions for the fiscal year 1890-1891 was $127,685,793.89, and the amount expended, $118,530,649.25, leaving an unexpended surplus of $9,155,144.60. The Commissioner is quite confident that there will be no call this year for a deficiency appropriation, notwithstanding the rapidity with which the work is being pushed. The mistake which has been made by many in their exaggerated estimates of the cost of pensions is in not taking account of the diminished value of the first payments under the recent legislation. These payments under the general law have been for many years very large, as the pensions, when allowed, dated from the time of filing the claim, and most of these claims had been pending for years. The first payments under the law of June 1890 are relatively small, and as the percent of these cases increases and that of the old cases diminishes, the annual aggregate of first payments is largely reduced. The Commissioner, under date of November 13, furnishes me with the statement that during the last four months, 113,000 175 certificates were issued, 27,893 under the general law, and 85,282 under the Act of June 27, 1890. The average first payment during these four months was $131.85, while the average first payment upon cases allowed during the year ending June 30, 1891, was $239.33 being a reduction in the average first payments during these four months of $107.48. The estimate for pension expenditures for the fiscal year ending June 30, 1893, is $144,956,000, which, after a careful examination of the subject, the Commissioner is of the opinion will be sufficient. While these disbursements to the disabled soldiers of the Great Civil War are large, they do not realize the exaggerated estimates of those who oppose this beneficent legislation. The Secretary of the Interior shows with great fullness the care that is taken to exclude fraudulent claims, and also the gratifying fact that the persons to whom these pensions are going are men who rendered not slight but substantial war service. The report of the Commissioner of Railroads shows that the total debt of the subsidized railroads to the United States was, on December 31, 1890, $112,512,613.06. A large part of this debt is now fast approaching maturity, with no adequate provision for its payment. Some policy for dealing with this debt with a view to its ultimate collection should be at once adopted. It is very difficult, well-nigh impossible, for so large a body as the Congress to conduct the necessary negotiations and investigations. I therefore recommend that provision be made for the appointment of a commission to agree upon and report a plan for dealing with this debt. 
The work of the Census Bureau is now far in advance and the great bulk of the enormous labor involved completed. It will be more strictly a statistical exhibit and less encumbered by essays than its immediate predecessors. The methods pursued have been fair, careful, and intelligent, and have secured the approval of the statisticians who have followed them with a scientific and nonpartisan interest. The appropriations necessary to the early completion and publication of the authorized volumes should be given in time to secure against delays, which increase the cost and at the same time diminish the value of the work. The report of the Secretary exhibits with interesting fullness the condition of the territories. They have shared with the states the great increase in farm products and are bringing, yearly, large areas into cultivation by extending their irrigating canals. This work is being done by individuals or local corporations, and without that system, which a full preliminary survey of the water supply and of the irrigable lands would enable them to adopt. The future of the territories of New Mexico, Arizona, and Utah, in their material growth and in the increase, independence, and happiness of their people, is very largely dependent upon wise and timely legislation, either by Congress or their own legislatures, regulating the distribution of the water supply furnished by their streams. If this matter is much longer neglected, private corporations will have unrestricted control of one of the elements of life, and the patentees of the arid lands will be tenants at will of the water companies. The United States should part with its ownership of the water sources and the sites for reservoirs, whether to the states and territories or to individuals or corporations, only upon conditions that will ensure to the settlers their proper water supply upon equal and reasonable terms. In the territories, this whole subject is under the full control of Congress, and in the states it is practically so, as long as the government holds the title to the reservoir sites and water sources and can grant them upon such conditions as it chooses to impose. The improvident granting of franchises of enormous value without recompense to the state or municipality from which they proceed and without proper protection of the public interests is the most noticeable and flagrant evil of modern legislation. This fault should not be committed in dealing with a subject that will before many years affect so vitally thousands of our people. The legislation of Congress for the repression of polygamy has, after years of resistance on the part of the Mormons, at last brought them to the conclusion that resistance is unprofitable and unavailing. The power of Congress over this subject should not be surrendered until we have satisfactory evidence that the people of the state to be created would exercise the exclusive power of the state over this subject in the same way. The question is not whether these people now obey the laws of Congress against polygamy, but rather would they make, enforce, and maintain such laws themselves if absolutely free to regulate the subject. We cannot afford to experiment with this subject, for when a state is once constituted, the act is final, and any mistake irretrievable. No compact in the Enabling Act could, in my opinion, be binding or effective. I recommend that provision be made for the organization of a simple form of town government in Alaska, with power to regulate such matters as are usually in the states under municipal control. 
these local civil organizations will give better protection in some matters than the present skeleton territorial organization. Proper restrictions as to the power to levy taxes and to create debt should be imposed. If the establishment of the Department of Agriculture was regarded by anyone as mere concession to the unenlightened demand of a worthy class of people, that impression has been most effectually removed by the great results already attained. Its home influence has been very great in disseminating agricultural and horticultural information, in stimulating and directing a further diversification of crops, in detecting and eradicating disease of domestic animals, and, more than all, in the close and informal contact which it has established and maintains with farmers and stock raisers of the whole country. Every request for information has had prompt attention and every suggestion merited consideration. The scientific corps of the department is of a high order and is pushing its investigations with method and enthusiasm. The inspection by this department of cattle and pork products intended for shipment abroad has been the basis of the success which has attended our efforts to secure the removal of the restrictions maintained by the European governments. For ten years, protests and petitions upon this subject from the packers and stock raisers of the United States have been directed against these restrictions, which so seriously limited our markets and curtailed the profits of the farm. It is a source of general congratulation that success has been at last attained, for the effects of an enlarged foreign market for these meats will be felt not only by the farmer, but in our public finances and in every branch of trade. It is particularly fortunate that the increased demand for food products resulting from the removal of the restrictions upon our meats and from the reciprocal trade arrangements to which I have referred should have come at a time when the agricultural surplus is so large. Without the help thus derived, lower prices would have prevailed. The Secretary of Agriculture estimates that the restrictions upon the importation of our pork products into Europe lost us a market value for $20 million worth of these products annually. The grain crop of this year was the largest in our history, 50% greater than that of last year, and yet the new markets that have been opened and the larger demand resulting from short crops in Europe have sustained prices to such an extent that the enormous surplus of meats and breadstuffs will be marketed at good prices, bringing relief and prosperity to an industry that was much depressed. The value of the grain crop of the United States is estimated by the Secretary to be this year $500 million more than last, of meats $150 million more, and of all products of the farm $700 million more. It is not inappropriate, I think, here to suggest that our satisfaction in the contemplation of this marvelous addition to the national wealth is unclouded by any suspicion of the currency by which it is measured and in which the farmer is paid for the products of his fields. The report of the Civil Service Commission should receive the careful attention of the opponents as well as the friends of this reform. The Commission invites a personal inspection by Senators and representatives of its records and methods, and every fair critic will feel that such an examination should precede a judgment of condemnation either of the system or its administration. It is not claimed that either is perfect, but I believe that the law is being executed with impartiality and that the system is incomparably better and fairer 
than that of appointments upon favor. I have during the year extended the classified service to include superintendents, teachers, matrons, and physicians in the Indian service. This branch of the service is largely related to educational and philanthropic work, and will obviously be better for the change. The heads of the several executive departments have been directed to establish at once an efficiency record as the basis of a comparative rating of the clerks within the classified service, with a view to placing promotions therein upon the basis of merit. I am confident that such a record, fairly kept and open to the inspection of those interested, will powerfully stimulate the work of the departments and will be acceptable by all as placing the troublesome matter of promotions upon a just basis. I recommend that the appropriation for the Civil Service Commission be made adequate to the increased work of the next fiscal year. I have twice before urgently called the attention of Congress to the necessity of legislation for the protection of the lives of railroad employees, but nothing has yet been done. During the year ending June 30, 1890, 369 brakemen were killed and 7,841 maimed while engaged in coupling cars. The total number of railroad employees killed during the year was 2,451, and the number injured, 22,390. This is a cruel and largely needless sacrifice. The government is spending nearly $1 million annually to save the lives of shipwrecked seamen. Every steam vessel is rigidly inspected and required to adopt the most approved safety appliances. All this is good, but how shall we excuse the lack of interest and effort in behalf of this army of brave young men who in our land commerce are being sacrificed every year by the continued use of antiquated and dangerous appliances? A law requiring of every railroad engaged in interstate commerce the equipment each year of a given percent of its freight cars with automatic couplers and air brakes would compel an agreement between the roads as to the kind of brakes and couplers to be used, and would very soon and very greatly reduce the present fearful death rate among railroad employees. The method of appointment by the states of electors of president and vice president has recently attracted renewed interest by reason of a departure by the state of Michigan from the method which had become uniform in all the states. Prior to 1832, various methods had been used by the different states and even by the same state. In some, the choice was made by the legislature. In others, electors were chosen by districts, but more generally by the voters of the whole state upon a general ticket. The movement toward the adoption of the last-named method had an early beginning and went steadily forward among the states until in 1832 there remained but a single state, South Carolina, that had not adopted it. That state, until the Civil War, continued to choose its electors by a vote of the legislature, but after the Civil War changed its method and conformed to the practice of the other states. For nearly sixty years, all the states, save one, have appointed their electors by a popular vote upon a general ticket, and for nearly thirty years this method was universal. After a full test of other methods, without important division or dissent in any state and without any purpose of party advantage, as we must believe, 
but solely upon the considerations that uniformity was desirable and that a general election in territorial divisions not subject to change was most consistent with the popular character of our institutions best preserved the equality of the voters and perfectly removed the choice of president from the baneful influence of the gerrymander the practice of all the states was brought into harmony that this concurrence should now be broken is i think an unfortunate and even a threatening episode and one that may well suggest whether the states that still give their approval to the old and prevailing method ought not to secure by a constitutional amendment a practice which has had the approval of all the recent michigan legislation provides for choosing what are popularly known as the congressional electors for president by congressional districts and the two senatorial electors by districts created for that purpose this legislation was of course accompanied by a new congressional apportionment and the two statutes bring the electoral vote of the state under the influence of the gerrymander these gerrymanders for congressional purposes are in most cases buttressed by a gerrymander of the legislative districts thus making it impossible for a majority of the legal voters of the state to correct the apportionment and equalize the congressional districts a minority rule is established that only a political convulsion can overthrow i have recently been advised that in one county of a certain state three districts for the election of members of the legislature are constituted as follows one has sixty five thousand population one fifteen thousand and one ten thousand while in another county detached non-contiguous sections have been united to make a legislative district these methods have already found effective application to the choice of senators and representatives in congress and now an evil start has been made in the direction of applying them to the choice by the states of electors of president and vice president if this is accomplished we shall then have the three great departments of the government in the grasp of the gerrymander the legislative and executive directly and the judiciary indirectly through the power of appointment an election implies a body of electors having prescribed qualifications each one of whom has an equal value and influence in determining the result so when the constitution provides that each state shall appoint elect in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors etc an unrestricted power was not given to the legislatures in the selection of the methods to be used a republican form of government is guaranteed by the constitution to each state and the power given by the same instrument to the legislatures of the states to prescribe methods for the choice by the state of electors must be exercised under that limitation the essential features of such a government are the right of the people to choose their own officers and the nearest practicable equality of value in the suffrages given in determining that choice it will not be claimed that the power given to the legislature would support a law providing that the persons receiving the smallest vote should be the electors or a law that all the electors should be chosen by the voters of a single congressional district the state is to choose and finder the pretense of regulating methods the legislature can neither vest the right of choice elsewhere nor adopt methods not comfortable to republican institutions 
it is not my purpose here to discuss the question whether a choice by the legislature or by the voters of equal single districts is a choice by the state but only to recommend such regulation of this matter by constitutional amendment as will secure uniformity and prevent that disgraceful partisan jugglery to which such a liberty of choice if it exists offers a temptation nothing just now is more important than to provide every guarantee for the absolutely fair and free choice by an equal suffrage within the respective states of all the officers of the national government whether that suffrage is applied directly as in the choice of the members of the house of representatives or indirectly as in the choice of senators and electors of president respect for public officers and obedience to law will not cease to be the characteristics of our people until our elections cease to declare the will of majorities fairly ascertained without fraud suppression or gerrymander if i were called upon to declare wherein our chief national danger lies i should say without hesitation in the overthrow of majority control by the suppression or perversion of the popular suffrage that there is real danger here all must agree but the energies of those who see it have been chiefly expended in trying to fix responsibility upon the opposite party rather than in efforts to make such practices impossible by either party is it not possible now to adjourn that interminable and inconclusive debate while we take by consent one step in the direction of reform by eliminating the gerrymander which has been denounced by all parties as an influence in the selection of electors of president and members of congress all the states have acting freely and separately determined that the choice of electors by a general ticket is the wisest and safest method and it would seem there could be no objection to a constitutional amendment making that method permanent if a legislature chosen in one year upon purely local questions should pending a presidential contest meet rescind the law for a choice upon a general ticket and provide for the choice of electors by the legislature and this trick should determine the result it is not too much to say that the public peace might be seriously and widely endangered i have alluded to the gerrymander as affecting the method of selecting electors of president by congressional districts but the primary intent and effect of this form of political robbery have relation to the selection of members of the house of representatives the power of congress is ample to deal with this threatening and intolerable abuse the unfailing test of sincerity in election reform will be found in a willingness to confer as to remedies and to put into force such measures as will most effectually preserve the right of the people to free and equal representation an attempt was made in the last congress to bring to bear the constitutional powers of the general government for the correction of fraud against the suffrage it is important to know whether the opposition to such measures is really rested in particular features supposed to be objectionable or includes any provision to give to the election laws of the united states adequacy to the correction of grave and acknowledged evils i must yet entertain the hope that it is possible to secure a calm patriotic consideration of such constitutional or statutory changes as may be necessary to secure the choice of the officers of the government to the people by fair apportionments and free elections 
I believe it would be possible to constitute a commission, nonpartisan in its membership and composed of patriotic, wise, and impartial men, to whom a consideration of the question of the evils connected with our election system and methods might be committed with a good prospect of securing unanimity in some plan for removing or mitigating those evils. The Constitution would permit the selection of the Commission to be vested in the Supreme Court if that method would give the best guarantee of impartiality. This Commission should be charged with the duty of inquiring into the whole subject of the law of elections as related to the choice of officers of the national government with a view to securing to every elector a free and unmolested exercise of the suffrage and as near an approach to an equality of value in each ballot cast as is attainable. While the policies of the general government upon the tariff, upon the restoration of our merchant marine, upon river and harbor improvements, and other such matters of grave and general concern are liable to be turned this way or that, by the results of congressional elections and administrative policies, sometimes involving issues that tend to peace or war, to be turned this way or that by the results of a presidential election. There is a rightful interest in all the states and in every congressional district that will not be deceived or silenced by the audacious pretense that the question of the right of any body of legal voters in any state or in any congressional district to give their suffrages freely upon these general questions is a matter only of local concern or control. The demand that the limitations of suffrage shall be found in the law, and only there, is a just demand, and no just man should resent or resist it. My appeal is, and must continue to be, for a consultation that shall proceed with candor, calmness, and patience upon the lines of justice and humanity, not of prejudice and cruelty. To the consideration of these very grave questions, I invite not only the attention of Congress, but that of all patriotic citizens. We must not entertain the delusion that our people have ceased to regard a free ballot and equal representation as the price of their allegiance to laws and to civil magistrates. I have been greatly rejoiced to notice many evidences of the increased unification of our people and of a revived national spirit. The vista that now opens to us is wider and more glorious than ever before. Gratification and amazement struggle for supremacy as we contemplate the population, wealth, and moral strength of our country. A trust momentous in its influence upon our people and upon the world is for a brief time committed to us, and we must not be faithless to its first condition the defense of the free and equal influence of the people in the choice of public officers and in the control of public affairs. End of section 7. Recording by Paul Thomas.